Just two days from now, on October 15th, the ESV Study Bible will mark its 13th anniversary. Created by a team of 95 leading Bible scholars and teachers from around the world, the ESV Study Bible quickly established itself as a groundbreaking edition of God's Word and has since sold over 1 million copies worldwide. In our interview today, I'm talking with Justin Taylor, Crossway's book publisher and project manager for the ESV Study Bible when it was being created. We discuss how Justin first got connected to Crossway, what his day-to-day work on the project looked like in the early 2000s, and how the ESV Study Bible set a new standard for study Bibles when it was first released in 2008. Let's get started. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Yeah, happy to talk to you, Matt. Thanks. It's good to sit down again uh, in person. In person, in the flesh. Uh, so many of our listeners would know you in your role as Crossway's book publisher. You've been at Crossway for a number of years now, uh, but you've actually been involved with, to broadly define it, Christian publishing uh, a lot longer than your time even at Crossway. And I, I even want to go all the way back to when you first started your blog, Between Two Worlds. I wonder if you could uh, take us back to that. What was what was your thinking? How old were you? What were you doing when you started that blog? And and kind of what was the what was your original goal for that? Yeah, you're testing my memory here, and I feel like an old man without <laughs> being able to remember all the details. But it was in the early 2000s, uh, living up in Minneapolis, working at Desiring God uh, for John Piper. That was my day job, mm. and. Uh, Hugh Hewitt, the radio host, wrote a book called Blog. He was one of the early blog fathers, yeah. and I read that book. It was kind of like, here's this rush-to-market book on why blogging is important and why blogging is the wave of the future and why everybody should be blogging. And, and you, I remember you read it and you totally believed it? I read it and thought, yeah, I, I like words and mm. I want to influence people and want to serve people. But I remember specifically thinking like, I'm probably too late for the game. Like everybody else has jumped in and uh, I'm here. I'm this Johnny come lately. And yeah. Did you uh, have any writing experience before starting the blog? uh, I think I'd probably written, you know, actually Matt Perman and I began a website when we were in college at University of Northern Iowa together called Contend for the Faith. And it's still like on geocities.com or something like that. Is it still out? Somewhere out there, it's still there. (laughs) But we would, uh, you know, read theology and apologetic stuff and write articles in college and kind of writing our own HTML. Though I'm I'm a very non-techie sort of person, but (laughs) we started doing some of that. And uh, I was editing some books with Piper and writing the introductions. Mm. At some point, it seems like Between Two Worlds, though, became pretty popular and actually was... uh, yeah, it kind of had a certain type of power and influence in the that's the kind of the sub-Christian culture that we all live in here. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's a, a small subculture. So it's <laughs> not like, you know, it's on the national stage. But it was pre-Twitter days. So, you know, if some listeners only know of social media through Twitter, uh, I was sometimes posting like four or five blog posts a day. Oh, wow. But they were short, and they were mainly, uh, I saw my role as not being a writer per se, but as being a summarizer and a pointer. Mm. Like, you're going to get online, if you don't know where to go, come to my blog, and I'll give you a good quote, I'll point you to a good sermon, here's a new video, 
I was kind of keeping up on all the latest scuttlebutt of what was happening and evangelical controversies and that sort of thing. So, yeah, some people jokingly called me the Christian Drudge Report, <laughs> which uh, you know maybe is a compliment, maybe maybe it's a put down. But did you ever consider kind of trying to make more of that and actually, I don't know, invest full time in? some kind of online journalism, you know, aggregation type of thing. You know, I didn't. Um, and it was interesting, Tim Challies and I, I think Tim started before me and has a different model than me. But he was more invested in that, I think, as a, you know, perhaps this business model, thinking through that. And I was more, I would just want to post stuff each day and hope people read it, hope people like it, but, you know, not checking my metrics all the time and that sort of thing. So it's interesting when Ben Pays, who was the executive director of Gospel Coalition, came into my office at Crossway and said, would you consider taking your blog from Blogspot? It was theologica.blogspot.com and transferring it over to be the first blog at TGC. That was an interesting thing to think through. I'm part Mm -hmm. of a bigger organization. Um, So I, I haven't always thought super strategically. I've always just wanted it to be helpful and I yeah. think it's it's waned in influence and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I just like posting what I find interesting. And if yeah. other people happen to find it interesting, great. If even if there was some sense in which you were behind the curve back in the early two thousands, uh the the growth, the, the explosion of noise online today just makes all that seem so quaint almost. It does, yeah. It it was a different world, especially without Twitter and the way in which that kind of influences the way we process information Mm. and the amount of information uh back in the day you could kind of like you know maybe have your six or seven blogs and kind of be up on what was going on in the evangelical world yeah you have your 1000 different twitter feeds that you could follow do you think any of the change in your own uh use of your blog or even just the, the the way that people could could access it i'd have to think some of that would relate to even the way that rss Sort of, yeah. sort of died out effectively, replaced perhaps by social media. Yep, yeah, I think that was a a big thing. And then uh, the Facebook algorithms, which you know a lot more about than I do. I mean, there was a a time when you'd post something to Facebook and it could kind of explode. Now, uh, you know, it's like a little pebble in the the ocean. Hmm. Sometimes with Facebook and just the way in which that whole business dynamic has changed. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned working with John Piper. Uh, you served as his executive editor at Desiring God for a number of years. Uh, and that was kind of one step along the path toward working at Crossway right. and the ESV Study Bible. Uh, explain a little bit more about what your role there was uh, with Piper. Yeah, I was one of the directors there, and I think that my title was something like Director of Theological Education. And so... There'd be questions coming in to the ministry and to John Piper, and he couldn't answer all of them personally. I would oversee kind of the correspondence with people in the early days, um, editing all of his books, editing the sermons, uh, which is providing feedback to him, but you know he doesn't do anything remotely close to ghostwriting, so mm-hmm. it's a very uh, support-heavy uh, calling and vocation. Travel with him, not, not every traveling engagement but go with him and support him in that way so it was a a wonderful learning experience to be able to kind of a front row to his ministry and to see behind the scenes what was going on Mm. did you ever offer uh, ideas or uh, feedback on books that he was writing things that he was writing uh, that he uh, anything stand out a bit of feedback that you offered that maybe he accepted or or said no thanks yeah i'm sure there were a lot of things he's very 
humble and very um, wants to have feedback and doesn't feel like, don't edit me. I've written what I've written. He, he wants it to kind of go through the ringer and for people to give him critical feedback, especially the people that he's close to and that he trusts. And that's, you know, work is ongoing at Desiring God with David Mathis and Tony Reiki and the other guys there. Um, so he would patiently listen to any suggestion that I offered. I do remember sitting at my computer in my office, getting the email from him, don't waste your life, here's the manuscript, go through it, you know, rip it apart, give me your feedback. So I'm sitting there, you know, opening this email. How, how old are you at the time? Uh, I don't know, 23, 24. Yeah, so young 20s yeah. or early 20s. Yeah, somewhere in their early 20s. So nobody else in the world has read Don't Waste Your Life other than John Piper. And I'm reading it. And I remember thinking, this is all really good, but I think he said most of this stuff before. I don't know if this is really this viable new book. Mm. And, you know, It's surpassed the original Don't Desiring God uh, in terms of the number sold and uh, has had its own special ministry. So mm. just an interesting thing that, you know, some of the books, uh, I remember one in particular that I... I thought this is just with another publisher is gonna brilliant idea, gonna go gangbusters and didn't do that well. So yeah. uh, I'm not the guy to come to with predictions of how, how <laughs> that, things are gonna. That go. speaks to the broader uh, the mysteries of the publishing industry. As you think about that time, the time that you spent in particular writing with Piper and working with him on words and in scripture and with all these theological and biblical ideas, any lessons loom large in your mind? lessons that perhaps you have seen kind of benefit you and help you later in your career? I think that one of the biggest things that I learned from Piper, just because he hammers it so much and models it so well, is that your terms must be defined. Uh, to just assume that your reader's going to know what you mean, or, or worse, to couch things in an ambiguous way that it can be taken one way or another and you're kind of appealing to two sides at the same time. He's just relentlessly definitional mm. and precise. And so if you read a John Piper on, say, coveting, you may disagree, you may agree, you may agree with some things and disagree with some things, but there's no doubt in your mind what he means by that term mm. because he's going to clearly define it for you. So that's a frustrating thing and other authors to let's you know take a term like social justice, I could a hundred percent agree with it, or I could a hundred percent disagree with it, depending on what you mean by it. But if you don't give me a clear definition, I'm I'm kind of at sea trying to mm. figure that out. So that would be one thing. I think another thing from Piper, just sort of thing that he modeled in his writing and thinking, was he he would never want to put together a statement of just affirmations. He would also want to put together a statement of corresponding denials because a lot of people can, more people can sign on to the affirmations than the corresponding, but I don't mean this and I disagree with this. Mm. So that's so, that feels a little bit countercultural right now where often there's this idea of let's find the things that we agree on. Let's unite around the things that we can commonly yeah. affirm. But, but he would kind of say there's a value in also acknowledging what we don't disagree. Yeah, I think so. That. Yeah, let's also unite around what we think is out of bounds and mm. is inappropriate and is uh, unfair or unjust or unclear and that sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah. Um, mm. So, when then did you first learn about the ESV Study Bible project uh, in its early days? So, I was working 
for John full time, and he was Crossway's number one author. And Crossway at that time, uh, you know, this is again kind of maybe 2003, 2004, 2005. Uh, so he's not only the biggest, biggest author, but they're not a huge company. I mean, they're mm. not publishing that many books. Uh, I'm not sure the exact figure, but you know, maybe 25, 30 books a year, yeah. 35. Uh, and compare that to now would be... Uh, yeah, I mean, 80, 90, yeah. 9,500. Um, so... Given my proximity to Piper, and then given Piper's role at Crossway, just as their top author, I had a pretty good access to Lane Dennis and the publishing team. And those, uh, they started pitching me some projects like side Bible projects. Like we want to do this truth Bible, like a paperback Bible with some supplemental material in the front and the back on truth and kind of come up with a scripture reading plan. And and they knew you could write. They knew you could kind of yeah, do they, that kind of stuff. They, they knew the editorial stuff and the interest and those was kind of on the same page with them theologically. So kind of these little side gig projects hmm. that I would be happy to do uh, here and there. And then I remember one time them coming to me and saying, we've got a big project that we would like for you to be involved with as the managing editor. And I think the original pitch was really like, I think the idea was you can stay working for Piper, Desiring God, but if you'd like to do this kind of as a side gig, hmm. uh, an intensive, longer-term thing. And so I was interested in that, but I was also kind of getting the vocational itch at that time to move on. Hmm. Um, and just to, I, I never envisioned myself retiring at Desiring God. I loved it there, and I valued it and thank God for it. I just never saw myself as like a lifer. Um, so I was kind of having that vocational itch to begin with, and ended up flying down here and having conversations about, you know, what would a possible position look like and Did it um, did it become pretty clear to everybody that this would be a bigger than a part time gig? Yeah, I think I don't think it took very long to realize mm. that uh this was gonna be a very full time job. Yeah. Well they did hire me eventually and the study Bible was one project of I was like my title was something like Bible project manager. So they had me doing these other Bible projects, but very quickly it became evident that this is going to have to be like, this is what you're doing all day long. Hmm. And uh, part of that was because of Lane's uh, direction in terms of the timeline, that this was not going to be a five-year, seven-year, ten-year project. So there was another publisher doing a study Bible that started way before the ESV study Bible and published way after we were completed. Oh, wow. So we had this very accelerated timeline uh, involving a lot of people in different countries mm-hmm. and a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So managing that became... What was behind that, that impulse uh, from Crossway to, to keep the, the fire burning? I think at that time, the translation had been in existence for five years. Um, you know, if it came out in 2001, so this may be beginning of 2006. But there weren't a lot of supplemental resources to go along with it. We didn't have a study Bible. Mm. And I think that it's hard for a translation to gain traction without having commentaries and concordances yeah, and tools to help you read it. Exactly. So, you know, some things were being done here and there, but you've kind of got this translation floating along without any. Th- superstructure around it. 
So I think that was part of the impetus of let's get this study Bible out there and let's try to do it better than it's ever been done. Let's try to introduce features that would be uniquely helpful to readers. But the sooner we can get this out there, the sooner we can accelerate the the place of the ESV in evangelicalism, if, if they'll have it. Mm. Um, but it's a key resource that it's kind of just... I don't want to say that the ESV was limping along, but it it didn't have that structure around it to support it. Yeah. So I think, and then if you know somebody comes out with another big study Bible and that makes the huge splash, it wasn't all just about competition or anything like that. But let's do this sooner rather than later, and let's uh, let's work as hard as we can and do as good of mm. job as we can. Yeah, it's easy to look back from our vantage point today and see the the growth of the ESV as a translation in the U.S. and even abroad, and, and the 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 success of the ESV study Bible uh, and kind of assume that everyone back in that day sort of understood that was the trajectory that you were on. Yeah. There's a lot more translations that have failed than have succeeded. And the ones even that remain can kind of just be there, but it's, it's difficult to transition an entire church over to purchasing new pew Bibles and going to wording that they're not used to having. I think the ESV had an advantage there with it being part of the King James lineage so that there's f- familiarity with the, mm. the rhythms and the terminology. It's it's one of the few uh, translations, uh, really the only one around that's that's kind of liturgically based that can be an international translation that picks up on the cadences and the rhythm and the vocabulary that's been used for centuries. When you do a brand new translation, that's harder. People haven't you know, heard that wording and that rhythm and that syntax before. Mm. So you mentioned that there was this desire to uh, do something special, do something different with this study Bible that hadn't really been done before. Uh, in what ways uh, were you guys seeking to kind of set a new standard? Yeah. We really wanted to walk somewhat of a tightrope in that we wanted the study Bible to have a theological identity and to have some coherence to it, and yet not be, you know, only a Presbyterian Bible mm. or only an Anglican Bible, only a Baptist Bible. Um, so some flexibility, but also some robust identity. Was that a hard balance to figure out? I think at times, I, I don't think it was on paper. I think in practice, uh, I mean, you get. 10 Bible scholars in a room and that you'll have 10 different opinions on, not just on a particular verse, but how to approach things. And a lot of times there's shades of nuance. So you get 120 people working on a project, mainly by email. And lots of people are going to see things lots of different little ways. Mm -hmm. So Lane Dennis uh, will probably have a specific reward in heaven for uh, (laughs) peacemaking and peacekeeping and Solomonic wisdom and decision-making and and sorting through those sort of things. I think that was one thing, that we wanted to be a robust theological, exegetical, biblical theological, meaty study Bible that's accessible, um, but based on the best research. We also wanted it to have design elements that would be uniquely attractive and Mm. usable. Um, So that influenced the way in which we thought about the typography. It's the way influenced the way in which we thought about 
the drawings that went into it, the yeah. sort of research that went into that, whom we hired to do the drawings. So those were created originally the for the study Bible. Right. Yeah, it, it took a long time to figure out how we were going to do those drawings. Um, and I walked into Lane's office one day and he had a bunch of these uh, like National Geographic travel brochures where if you went to Rome and you could see this kind of cut out illustration of the Colosseum. And just looking on the copyright page, like, who does these things? Who who draws architectural drawings and found the uh, malting partnership over in the UK? Like, that's their specialty is drawing mm-hmm. buildings. And we contacted them. They're not a Christian company. But we said, have you ever done biblical <laughs> reconstructions before? <laughs> they never had. Wow. But they said, you tell us what to draw, and we'll, we'll draw it. And so we hired uh, the best... Uh, there's an architect archaeologist who's done more work in Jerusalem on the temple than anybody else in the world. And he advised us very specifically along the way. And I mean, it was an extensive process, but they did these just stunning images that I think achieved a new standard in terms of accuracy, but also just in terms of accessibility. So they don't Mm. look cartoonish. They look like the sort of things that you're going to see in a national geographic cut out of the Roman Colosseum. Yeah. Getting, getting, uh, modern day Christians that much closer to actually understanding what what these structures looked like. Right. Yeah, and it you know, I've seen a lot of things on the Holy Land where you look at them, but they're contemporary pictures, which is great. You can kind of see what the sand or the hills or the trees look like, but you know, there's telephone wires in the background and mm. uh all sorts of things. Our idea was not to do contemporary photography of the actual land, but to try to reconstruct what it would have looked like then so that as best as we can tell this is what jerusalem looked like in the time of solomon this is mm-hmm. what it looked like under hezekiah this is what it looked like in jesus's time uh, so we're just constantly thinking about how how to portray for modern readers what the ancient world looked like back then mm. and just to give as much help as we could another thing that we did that accelerated the timeline is that we typeset the book in house the whole thing and we had as you know, we have brilliant IT guys who can run scripts. And uh, it, the the way that it was traditionally done before the ESV Study Bible was that it went to an outside firm who did it in a very uh, tedious, laborious way. And you change, I mean, just if, if any listener at home opens up their Study Bible randomly, there's a lot of different elements on that page. There's mm-hmm. the biblical text. There's the cross-references, there's the notes, there might be a chart, there might be a map, there might be a drawing. Um, so you change one sentence. Well, in the old days, you know, kind of pre-2005, yeah. you had to manually shift yeah. all those things. And when you have a book that's thousands of pages... Well, and all those all of those ancillary elements that go alongside the biblical text, they can't necessarily just be bumped to the next page. Right. They kind of have to be stuck to... The relevant verse. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It almost feels like an impossible task. Yeah. It's very, very complicated, but uh, Ray Elliott and others at Crossway wrote these scripts where it would automatically adjust everything. And it just, it probably saved us at least a year of mm. of time from, wow. from getting it finished to actually getting it published. Yeah. So when it comes to any study Bible, I think the the core feature that people are probably most often buying that that resource for are the study notes, the notes that accompany uh, maybe every passage at least, if not every verse on every page. 
but one of the things that the ESV Study Bible did that was, I think, uh, also really unique and uh, robust, perhaps more robust than most people realize, are all the theological articles uh, in the back of the edition. Uh, anything about that you can share about the genesis, genesis of those? Where did the idea come for including so many robust articles? Uh, and then how did, how did that decision-making process happen? Yeah, you're right. I think that was something unique that really hadn't been done. Uh, I don't know if it had ever been done before. If it hadn't, not very often. Um, one of the reasons that I really love coming to Crossway and working under Lane Dennis and Wayne Grudem as the general editor and the others is that there's such a ministry heart behind this Bible. It wasn't just we need to uh, get a certain market share or something like that. You know, be the number one study Bible, but we really want to serve God's people. And for most of us involved, we've been to seminary, and we were blessed with being able to take classes on theology and ethics, New Testament and Old Testament, and church history and the like, but recognizing the vast majority of people don't have that opportunity. And that especially is true in the majority world. So the English-speaking majority world, um, you know, could, if the Lord wills, this study Bible be something like a mini seminary in a box? Mm. So thinking about the pastor in Africa who might not have what most of us have, even if we're not don't have huge libraries, most of us have a number of books on our shelves, mm. and you know, visiting pastors in India who might have two or three books to think about putting in one between two covers not only commentary on the whole Bible but an overview of theology and an overview of ethics and if somebody asks them like how does uh, the canon work? How do you know that you have the right books in the canon? Well, let's do an article on that. How do biblical languages work? What does archaeology teach us about scripture? Uh, How do we know scripture is accurate? What do we think about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. So, you know, you're just an average Christian at home and you aren't seminary-led and you're not a pastor. You probably don't have a book on Mormon theology sitting in your home. Mm, yeah. But there's an article, you know, three pages in the back of your study Bible that just very objectively lays out, here's what Mormons believe and here's what the Bible teaches. Hmm. So there, there it is in your Bible tucked in the back uh, we just want to serve God's people and give them as much help as we possibly can. So, um, yeah, it's it's robust. And I think there's probably one of the more neglected parts of the study Bible is that. So we've we've taken the theology articles, pulled them out, and just published them as a standalone book. We've taken articles on how to read scripture, how to read it theologically, how to read it for personal application, uh, those constitute their own paperback books. So basically you have a study Bible and then like four or five books basically yeah. in the back of the Bible. Right, right. Uh, that's, that's so amazing. And I, I do think that's, it's true that if someone were to read through all of those articles and read through the whole Bible uh, along with the notes that go along with these passages, it really, it really would constitute a robust uh, introduction to the whole scope of Christian theology. And um, yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So what, describe a little bit more in detail your day-to-day role with the project. What, what did your work actually look like? There was a lot of work just on the front end of conceptualizing 
what are we going to actually do? We needed to come up with a prototype for the notes. If you just write to a, a scholar and say, we want you to write 10,000 words on this particular book, you don't know what you're going to get. So you need to give them a sample. Of, we want it kind of at this level. Mm. Here's the style in which to do it. Do you remember some of those guidelines that you were offering? Yeah, I, I remember just in, in broad stroke, uh, you know, what the sort of things that we came up with because there's even, it's a different genre, right? Like a, a typical Bible commentary, you just, you're writing about the text, but this is a very compact, concise way in, mm. in commenting so that, you know, certain words are bolded in mid-sentence. And so there's a stylistic thing that it's actually complicated to think yeah. through how, how best to do this. Because you, you do that as a way to indicate to the reader, this is an actual word from the text. Right that I'm commenting on, I'm explaining now, but you're sometimes just incorporating those into the sentence themselves. Exactly, yep. So you're reading along, you see the word first fruits, and you're kind of wondering about, you know, what does that mean or the theological significance? Your eye glances down, you see that word bolded, and you can kind of jump right to it mm. visually. Um, so there was some of that, figuring out who's going to actually contribute. Um, you know, not everybody said yes, and so you're thinking through, like, your kind of first ask and your second mm. ask. And that that correspondence, um, and ended up being ninety five different evangelical scholars. Yeah, yeah, from Australia to Japan to New Zealand to Canada to the U.S. And so uh, I can't imagine doing this project like in the eighties or nineties mm-hmm. even. Um, but it was very nice to be able to do the vast majority of it by email. Yeah, and once we got everything prototyped. And everybody in place, then, you know, a scholar would send me, here are my notes on first through second chronicles, let's say. Wouldn't that just be like a Word doc? A Word document, yep, should be one file, and you'd have the introduction, and then here are all the notes. No ESV text, just notes, you know, one colon one, and and we're off and running. So I would read through that and edit it. Uh, Shara Baumgarten, who... Came married, became Shara Gross. She was like our project assistant. She did a lot of, she would go through and kind of conform things to a style guide. Uh, but I would do kind of the first editorial pass conceptually and say like, you know, this, uh, don't we want to make sure we comment on this? Or are we sure we want to say that? Mm. So you did that for um, every note? Every note, yeah. What Was there, how, how did you actually do that? It feels like that would require such a level of, uh, knowledge of all of these biblical passages to be able to kind of think, oh, you didn't really hit on this theme that is, I actually think is really important here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's the sort of thing that you probably could spend a year on every book, you know, going in depth, but reading through them quickly and just um, one of the goals that we had with it was, and this was something that Wayne Grudem stressed, let's produce a study Bible that tries to answer all the major objections that people have. So, you know, if there's an objection about uh, how Judas died, these two accounts look contradictory. They, it's a Bible contradiction. The Bible can't be true. Mm. We want that your average evangelical reader to be able to pick up their study Bible and say, well, let me let me look at a resource and see, oh, the ESV study Bible addresses that. So it has an apologetic angle there, to it. Yeah, and it, was, it wasn't a hard and fast, I mean, it wasn't a dominant emphasis, but it was just mm. quietly there. So I would have resources like... Uh, Gleason Archer's Encyclopedia Bible Difficulties. And just want to see, like, did 
did our author pick up that people allege that there's a contradiction in the parallel account? Mm. So that might be something I would flag. It might be something theologically where it would be a little bit different than where we were at, maybe you know, to the right or to the left or whatever. Um, That's another question. Was there a theological... Um, were there kind of key doctrines even perhaps that you you wanted to be represented uh, robustly in the notes in some yeah. way? Well, the one thing that we wanted to do was to be ruthlessly fair with every position. So not to, you know, denigrate other positions or to uh, be unfair, but represent any position accurately. Um, in general, it was a reformed ethos to it, kind of the re- broadly reformed stream that would encompass uh, Presbyterianism, Baptists, and Anglicans in that kind of broad reformed big God theology stream. Um, we wanted it to be complementarian in terms of just that conviction that this is what the Bible teaches. And again, to be fair to the other side, to explain this is how other people read it. There's a personal angle there for me because when I was in high school, I was kind of wrestling through the issue. Somebody just raised the issue of, you know, um, men and women in the church and picking up one of the leading study Bibles. It just gave both views. Like some people say this, some people say that and Mm. moved on. And so I just thought, well, that's, uh, I guess you can just kind of pick and choose either one of these. They're, they're both, uh, equally legitimate. And so we wanted to have a, kind of a confessional orientation on that issue in particular. Uh, but then when it came to things like um, dispensationalism and covenant theology, uh, this especially applies to books like Daniel and uh, Book of Revelation, we just wanted to be kind of fair to both sides and lay that out and not just only push a specific view yeah. on that. So a little bit broader stream on some of those eschatological issues, a little bit narrower on on soteriological issues, mm. but never trying to overtly push an agenda that didn't arise from the text. Mm. We wanted it to be in accord with what Scripture teaches. And, and that's something that is notable about the, the notes. If anyone spent a good amount of time reading them, I think they will notice that there are many occasions when there's a little bit of this, you know, here are these three different options, ways people will often interpret this passage, and maybe here's what what we think is the right way to think of it for these reasons. But there is, there does seem to be a pretty intentional uh, attempt to uh, present the the mainstream options pretty fairly. Yeah, I think somebody who has more time in their hands could actually try to research this, but I think proportionally, First Peter may have more notes per actual <laughs> biblical text than any other book in the uh, ESV Study Bible. Tom Schreiner, our New Testament editor, wrote a commentary on First Peter, and years ago, Wayne Grudem wrote the Tyndale uh, commentary on First Peter, and they disagree on a key passage, so it's, you know, it's a lengthy note where they each give kind of the best arguments. Mm. You know, here's point point A, and uh, here are the reasons for it, and here's a view B, and here are the reasons for it. And, you know, ultimately let the reader decide which of those sets of arguments are stronger. Yeah. Was there ever a point in the, the project, as you were kind of uh, juggling, I would imagine at the end, thousands of emails with all these people all over the world and uh, trying to edit all this stuff and keep things moving, 
did you ever kind of stop and think, I don't know if I can do this or I don't know if this is going to work? Uh, th- that sense ever strike you? Well, those are two different questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can I do it and will this work? Um, I don't think I ever doubted that it would materialize. And I don't think I ever doubted that it would really serve God's people and be really helpful. Uh, it was stressful. I mean, it was a season, if you interviewed Lane Dennis, he would say, I think, the same thing. It was an all-encompassing, long season. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I'd say this is not... This is in the ballpark of one of the very first things I thought of when I opened my eyes in the morning. <laughs> one of the last things I thought of before I go to bed each night. Because it was just, I, you know, I, I'm going to go into work, open up my email... And there may be the first submission on First and Second Chronicles, and there may be the author to Galatians not happy with some of the edits, and there may be the guy writing this Old Testament book that uh, needs to delay his submission another several months. You know, so there's so many the the spinning plates analogy mm. comes to mind with a project of this size. Um, I I think I had some doubts that we could actually pull off Lane's timeline, especially when contributors weren't coming through or there were some disagreements on, you know, the best way to handle certain things. Mm. Um, but I, I don't think I ever doubted that it would happen Yeah, and that I could kind of stick through it just putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Um, but there was so much excitement because I was basically reading this thing on my computer every day and nobody else in the world got to see it. Like... I was looking at pictures of Jerusalem like I'd never seen before, mm. and uh, of you know ancient synagogues that had never been drawn, or the temple that was viewed. You know, one one day I said to the guys from Maltings Partnership and our Lane Rittmeyer, our consultant, like, what would it look like if you actually looked at the temple from where the cross was from Calvary? Like, if you turned the whole thing around and you looked at the back of the temple. I realized, according to the Reconstruction, Jesus could actually have looked over his left shoulder and seen the temple mm. off in the distance. Wow. Like, nobody's ever shown that angle before. And they're like, yeah, we can do it. We've never done it before, but we can do it. <laughs> so I'm looking at that on my computer, and like, nobody else in the world has seen this. And so there was just so much excitement yeah. to think about. I can't wait for people to benefit from this and learn from this and be helped by it. Do you remember the moment, um, or was there a moment when you kind of Ah, th- yeah, the significance of this project kind of hit you and you thought, this is going to be a big deal. Yeah. Well, I think from the beginning, we just had that sense that we were we were coming up with ideas and features that people hadn't done before. And so I think it would have been harder if it was just, we were just going to do notes. Because people had done notes, you know, NIV Study Bible is a a legacy, a contribution to evangelicalism. We could have just done that, and I think I would have thought, this is good. We're doing updated scholarship. You know, maybe it's got a little bit more of a reform flavor, but uh, being a part of that team that was saying, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we add this in there? What if we, uh, you know, had archaeologists go through all the notes and add different discoveries? Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> uh, so that was the exciting part is that there was, it's not like working for some gigantic corporation where you might have ideas and, well, who are you to say it? It was uh, kind of a lean organization mm. that 
you know, if your idea was good and it was feasible and yeah. the others agreed with it, we could do it. Was there a specific idea or contribution that you had that that you uh, that that got through the approval process and that you're kind of most proud of? I think all the good ideas were mine, so it's hard <laughs> to kind of no, hard to just, just pick one. <laughs> no, I can't think of anything specifically, um, but you know, I think each person kind of had their own suggestions and ideas and hmm. um the one that was uh maybe the most interesting this was really Wayne Grudem's idea and in a sense it didn't work in a sense I think it did he wanted Vern Poitras to go through so we had like an archaeologist uh old testament archaeologist new testament archaeologist go through and just say come up with all the major discoveries everything interesting that you know has been discovered that confirms historically what happened and just add those into the notes. Um, we kind of melded them together. So you're reading the note, and then you realize, like, oh, they actually found uh, <laughs> this thing that mentions this person. Wow, that's cool. Wayne's idea was, let's have Vern Poitras do that and point to every way in which this is fulfilled in Christ and points to Jesus. And Vern Poitras did it and did it brilliantly mm. and beautifully there was no good way to really meld that with the Old Testament notes mm. as they were written. It just kind of st- stood out like a sore thumb. Not because they weren't good. It was just, it kind of interrupted the yeah. flow. It was like Different kind of, kind of content. Yeah, two, two legitimate ways of thinking, but kind of trying to meld them together into one note just felt odd. And so we ended up collecting all of those in the back. And I think if anybody owns an ESV study Bible, uh, might not know those are in there, but it's a, just an, incredibly enriching mm. read to go through every book of the Old Testament and see all of the ways in which it points forward to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. The, the Study Bible was published in 2008, the fall of 2008, and before it was even released, uh, I believe the, the first print run of 100,000 copies was already sold out. Um, were you and others at Crossway expecting that kind of uh, sales potential for this Bible early on? I think we knew that it would do well. Um, I think that it kind of fell in a gap where you had like the, the old venerable NIV study Bible, which hadn't been updated like it is now. Um, and then there were other study Bibles kind of in the works. So we knew that we were coming into an area where there, it wasn't an overabundance of um, competing study Bibles that were just being released at the same time. So we thought that it would get quite a bit of attention how much attention or what sort of sales figures they were predicting i really don't Hmm. know but i I know with my own blog i just asked permission like can we just put up the whole introduction to jonah um why jonah yeah i mean you know it's a shorter (laughs) book or it's an old testament book but you know it gives somebody a sample like i think some publishers were reticent of we don't want to give away too much material Hmm. Um, and our philosophy was like, let's post it. If you don't buy the study Bible, at least maybe you got help just reading through this. Mm. But I think people are starting to see this content and wanting to see more from what we were doing. So uh, I can't remember specifically. Yeah, I, I think there was an expectation it would do well, but you know, it, like I think World Magazine named it Book of the Year and th- that sort of thing. And so it was really gratifying and encouraging to see the sort of reception that it did have. Yeah, right. So the actual day that the study Bible was published was October 15th, 
2008. So almost exactly 13 years ago to the day. Um, do you remember what you were feeling on that day, the, the official release date? What, what were the emotions that were uh, in your mind then? That is a great question. It would be great if I remember <laughs> exactly. Um, I do remember that we went to the printing press in Indiana and, and viewed it in advance and saw it coming off of um, the, the initial... I'd never actually seen a printing press before, and if nobody's ever seen one, I suppose they're on YouTube somewhere, but yeah. it's just... A Bible uh, printing press in particular. Yeah, I mean, they're like the, size, the printers are the size of a football field. I, I'd just never seen anything like it, and that was moving. Again, to go from kind of... Like, I felt like I'd been sitting in my office for years just looking at this thing on a screen. Mm. And then to see the color print being dropped on these rolling things going at warp speed, <laughs> uh, it was just sort of mind-blowing. Yeah. So, um, Do you remember when you first held a finished Bible in your hand? Uh, I do, but I mean, it's a little bit vague, so I'm not giving you a great <laughs> answer there. But it, it was wonderful just to be able to open it and to see it in print. Um, yeah, because it was really a really culmination of uh, several years of work. And, and one of the thoughts that I had was that, how old was I then? So that was 13 years ago, and I'm 45 now. In my early 30s, mm. I'm thinking, probably no matter what I do, this is going to be one of the most significant things I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of in my life. I mean, that's a that's a gratifying feeling. And I think it was a pretty unprecedented move at the time. Uh, when Crossway released the Study Bible, uh, Crossway also released, I think concurrently with that, uh, a robust digital edition of the Study Bible that readers could receive for free uh, with their purchase of the print edition. Um, at the time, that was pretty groundbreaking. This is 2008. Uh, just one year before, 2007, is when the iPhone was first released, which, again, for, for most of us today, I'm sure feels like eons ago. Um, what was behind that? What were the conversations that led to the decision to release this digital edition? Yeah, one of the impressive things to me was that Crossover is always thinking about digital things, how to be responsive to the changing dynamics of what we're experiencing in terms of this digital revolution, and so there was always kind of a forward-thinking aspect to Crossway. Crossway's got kind of a, a classical, traditional ethos in some ways, and an innovative, nimble um, desire to react and adapt. So, yeah, that was one of the big things. Again, this, you know, you've got like the NIV Study Bible, which is this brilliant, uh, beautiful thing that's been around forever, but what can we do entering into this new space we can not only put together the most beautiful and robust print thing, but uniquely make it accessible online for people. But we knew where things were going, and we also had somewhat of a conviction that the the profits of uh, digital only were probably overstating things, that print would always remain with us uh, till the end of the age. But... Uh, that if we didn't have any digital access that we could kind of get caught sleeping behind the wheel. So that that was kind of a two-pronged strategy of mm. put together something beautiful in terms of its binding and its color, but also make it accessible so that if you're doing your sermon prep or doing your Bible study, you can have something right there you can copy and paste and highlight. Um, so that, I think that was another 
reason that was attractive to mm. the people in terms of using it. So as you were working on editing stuff that you were then pass them off to maybe the Bible typesetters or some other, you know, print Bible team, were you also then kind of working with the digital team to get this stuff ready to go online? Yeah, I didn't have much to do with that. It was basically just turning it over to them in terms of typesetting and then they were trying to figure out how to do this. Um, you know, how, how to how do you actually do it online? You know, now it's somewhat intuitive, like, oh, of course you do it like this, but do you have the Bible text on top and uh, kind of a split screen with the notes on the bottom? Or do you do it two windows kind of side by side, mm. uh, you know, vertically aligned? How do you do charts and maps? And are those embedded or do they open their own window? Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of things like that. You know, I give... Did you give Probably some feedback on some of that Occasional feedback, stuff? you know, of like, I'm not sure that works or how, how are we doing that? You know, one of the things that the Study Bible does, I don't think we're the first to do it, but if you go to, you know, I, I used First Chronicles earlier. Uh, we don't just start with one, chapter 1, verse 1. It would start with 1, 1, 2 through, uh, let's say, 325 like or something. a whole section. Right. And so that first note would actually be a s- summarizing the first three chapters or a major unit. Then, you know, in the, in the print Bible, then we would highlight that with a color, a screen color behind it. How do you do that digitally? Mm. What does that look like? Do you use different fonts and those sort of things. So a lot of decision making that kind of went out behind the scenes. That yeah. Most of it I was blissfully unaware of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is your favorite feature of the study Bible? I think one of the most important features that, I don't know if it's the most neglected or not because I don't know how people use the study Bible, but the introductions to the book, and I know this is a little bit of a broad answer to your question, but those when, I, when I'm going to study a book, that is such an important part of getting an orientation. Mm. It's easy to just say, like, I, I want to dive in, what does this passage mean? But to go back and to have an expert really help you understand here's what was happening in redemptive history at the time. Here's what was, uh, you know, here's the theological message. Here's the outline. Yeah, these are more here's, than one or two paragraphs. Right. I mean, they are, they're robust essays. That, with timelines. Uh, right. And, yeah. So with each one, we're trying to provide a map. We're trying to talk about literary themes, trying to outline the whole book, talk about purpose and background and occasion and, those sort of things. And even at a higher level than that, there's section introductions. So there's an essay introducing the whole Pentateuch, the first five books. There's an essay on how to think about and read the historical books. So I think those are really some of the most valuable things in the study Bible. There's a lot of different things I like, but it's it's really a roadmap before you begin the journey. Mm-hmm. You're getting an overview of where you're going and how to read it because if you don't know the rules of the road with driving, you're going to get messed up. If you don't know the rules hermeneutically of how to read this and how to understand what's going on, I think we can get off course pretty easily. So mm. I have a special spot in my heart for the section introductions and the actual introductions. But there's other things that, you know, I... I'm a chart guy. I like charts. <laughs> you you uh, post a lot of charts on your blog. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I like seeing the maps, trying to reconstruct. Uh, you know, I, I like pictures of temple and synagogue and uh, the Galilean fishing boat that was discovered and those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So it's been 13 years since uh, this Bible was published. Um, as you think ahead to the future, knowing what's come and knowing the impact that the study Bible has had on, um, I think it's fair to say, evangelicalism broadly and maybe even beyond that, um, what do you hope is true 13 years from now uh, as we look back on 26 years of the ESV study Bible? I hope it has an enduring quality. I hope that when we look back at it, you know, the quarter century mark, it doesn't feel like, oh, that was that was written for that particular time and space. That has mm. these quirks to it. That was that was a um, you know a 2008-ish version, but the people just benefit from it and say, this work helps me understand the work. Um, I've I've sometimes said a little tongue-in-cheek that the most important feature in the whole study Bible is the the gray line that separates the biblical text and the notes below. Mm. Because that's the most important line. <laughs> Un- unpack that. What do you mean by that? Everything above is infallible. It's true. It is life-giving. Everything below is an attempt to help you understand those life-giving words of the living God. But they're fallible. I mean, they're not perfect. They might not make every judgment correctly. But I hope that it will just continue to be a means of helping people go back up to the text. Mm. One thing that I think would be a failure is if people got really excited just reading the notes. And they they don't use that as a springboard to be in the Word, mm. to be reading the Word, to be shaped by the Word, to be learning the Word, to be letting the Word shape us. Um, you know, it's it's not a good thing to fall in love with the commentary and not to fall in love with the author and perfecter of our faith. Hmm. So that that would be my hope, is that people continue to see this as a resource to help them meet God and to understand his word better, to read it better, to uh, maybe be prevented from some of those uh, missteps that are easy to make, that if you're just trying to read the Bible, just you by yourself, apart from the community of faith, uh, apart from the rule of faith, apart from uh, the creeds and the history of the church, I think you can be in a lot of error and, mm. and enter into a lot of pitfalls. But this is ultimately a community project. It's not the work of just one man, but it's a community of scholars seeking the Lord, seeking to walk in the Spirit, and to unfold what God said, not what we want it to say, not what we think it should say, but what he has said. And so that would make me very happy if people used it to understand this, the word better. Well, Justin, thanks so much for uh, for helping us uh, understand a little bit better the, the history of the ESV study Bible and giving us a little insight into uh, that story. Thanks, Matt. That was Justin Taylor on the making of the ESV study Bible. Pick up a copy of the ESV Study Bible for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.